Well, church family, take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 5. We'll be spending most of our time in this chapter, of course, jumping around and looking at some cross-references that I will uh, share with you. Galatians chapter 5. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Steve, uh, Steve Hayfler, preached uh, from uh, Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit, keeping step in the Spirit. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be preaching from verses 13 and 15, and then jumping down to verse 25 and 26. So that's what I'm going to read aloud this morning. I'm going to start in verse 13, read down to verse 15, and then we'll jump down to verse 25. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Then down to verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. What are some of your favorite memories? Think back. What comes to mind? Maybe it's a memory of some great moment of laughter that you shared with friends or family. Maybe it's something from a family vacation. Or maybe it's uh, your wedding day or the birth of a child or some other precious memory with a family member. And all of our most cherished memories, you know, the kind of things that, uh, you know, they say that at the end of your life, your whole life flashes before your eyes. Those moments that we think would flash before our eyes, if that actually happens, are memories that have happened in relationship. Why are relationships so important to us? Why is it that everyone wants to be loved and wants to belong? And why is everyone looking for that all the time? Even us. The Christian worldview has what I believe to be the best answer for that question. If you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And we believe in what we sang this morning. Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again, our only hope to know God and to enjoy him forever. The Christian worldview has what I believe to be the best answer for the question of why are we always looking for love and a place to belong. It's based on what God revealed to us in the scriptures. And that fundamental reason that we crave relationships and love and a sense of belonging is because we are made in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that humans are uniquely and fundamentally relational beings. Now, I understand that other creatures are relational, right? Dolphins swim in pods, buffaloes roam in herds. And, but we as people are unique in the depth of the relationships that we have. Dolphins are not having relationship seminars. We do. There's something unique in the depth of what goes into what makes us uniquely human is being image bearers of God. From the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, humans were created from relationship, right? A triune God creating mankind, humankind. And then we were placed into relationship. Originally, Adam with God, and then eventually with other people. God made Adam. Then we were told that it was not good that Adam was alone. Which, by the way, I think is God teaching us something about who we are as his image bearers. He didn't need to create us in that order. All, everything else that he created was good, 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 good. And then he creates man... Adam, and he's alone, and God says, this is not good. It's highlighting it for us as readers. So then God made Eve and brought Adam and Eve together, and Adam and Eve enjoyed a perfect relationship with each other and with God. 
is described this way. They were naked and unashamed. But sadly, once sin entered the world, Adam and Eve hide from each other. Where before they were entirely at peace in each other's presence, now they felt a need to cover up and hide and not be seen, and they're blaming each other. And they hide from God. And our relationships with each other and with God have been plagued ever since by this, by sin. Sin has made our relationships so very difficult. Relationships are such hard work, aren't they? I mean, think about it. Sometimes relationships can be a nightmare. They cause us so many problems and frustrations, exasperations, worry, anxieties, fear, resentment. I don't know we could go, right? And yet, we all long for relationship. We're always hurting each other. We're disappointing each other. People disappoint you. You disappoint others. You disappoint yourself. We get upset. We get upset with others. Relationships are such hard work. And at the same time, we can't live without them. When we try to live without them, we start to lose part of what makes us human. We are image bearers of God made for relationship. So what are we supposed to do? Are we going to just give up on relationships? Are we supposed to settle with unhealthy relationships? What does God tell us? Well, God has been kind to give us instruction and a vision for what he wants our relationships to be like as his redeemed people. We're going to see in a little bit that it's really one of the distinguishing marks of us as God's people. God has been kind to give this instruction to us, and that's where we're headed in the sermon. But to start with, I'm going to have us look at what goes wrong in our relationships, what threatens our relationships. And once we see that, I hope we'll have an even greater longing for the good and beautiful vision that God has for us. Church family, we need this. We have lived through some difficult times over the past couple of months. Our relationships have been tested. Some have been fractured. Things have been said. Reactions and responses have occurred that have caused sorrow in us. And because of this, we've chosen to postpone observing the Lord's Supper today. Ordinarily, on a first Sunday of the month, we would. This decision was made simply out of reverence and obedience to the Scriptures in an effort of wanting to live in accord with what the Bible teaches about how the Lord's Supper is supposed to function in the life of the church. It's not just a routine that we go through. Just kind of punch a card and we've done that. Move on. Communion is a call to remember the covenant that Christ made with us through his great saving acts. And it's a renewal of then of what it means to be a spiritual family united together in the covenant he's made. And so in this moment in our church life, we believe it would be wise to give ourselves time to examine our hearts, to examine our relationships with each other in the light of God's word before we would just move ahead into kind of the, the rhythms and the routines of our worship together. We want to give time for us to pursue understanding and reconciliation with each other wherever that might be needed. And so I bring this up to help us lean into God's word together this morning. As a pastor, um, I stand accountable to God in unique ways. God commands pastors, in, like in 2 Timothy 4, to preach truth no matter if it's seasonably in fashion, which means that I have a, a accountability to God to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And this sermon is an aim at obeying those biblical commands. And as we head into this sermon together, I want to let these words from Proverbs ring in our ears. Proverbs 17.10 A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. 
We need God. We need His Word and His Spirit to do a restoring, reviving work in us and in our relationships so that we can fulfill our mission as a church. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into this together. Father, help us. God, we do not want to be, we do not want to be fools to have the, the life-giving truth of your word to just ricochet off of us. We want to be wise, living with a, with a reverence and awe of you, living in the fear of you. Lord, thank you for being with us always, that you are with us now. Lord, we don't deserve your presence, your love, your affection, your faithfulness, your mercy, your compassion, your forgiveness. And yet, God, you have been pleased to pour that out upon us again. So, Father, we pray that who you are and all that you've promised for us in Christ would encourage us, would melt us, would strengthen us to be a people who live by faith, that we would continue to taste and see of your goodness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Why do relationships go wrong? Why do things go wrong in our relationships? The simple answer to that question is, sim- is because of our sinful flesh. Uh, if you look in chapter 5, verse 13, you'll notice here that he is talking about uh, the flesh here. You were called the freedom brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This term, the flesh, in our Bibles is not a reference to our physical bodies, like flesh and blood in this sense. It is... Paul referring to your old self, your, your old sinful ego, that part of you that feels a deep emptiness and then is trying to do whatever it can to fill that emptiness in its own power, no matter what. Look at verse 26. This verse summarizes everything that goes wrong in our relationships. Here the Apostle Paul is summarizing the works of the flesh, which he describes and lists in verses 19 through 21. He says this, in a summary of all the things that can go wrong, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now that looks like a straightforward warning, but what does it mean? Well, let's unpack this a little bit. The word conceited is an interesting term. It literally means empty of glory. I think an old translation uh, translated it vain glory, but I mean, what does that mean? Conceited is describing someone who is excessively proud. That's the definition that you would find if you looked it up in a dictionary. Someone who is excessively proud. But it goes beyond that. It's not just excessive pride. It's excessive because it is false pride. It is pride in something that doesn't exist. Someone who boasts in something that isn't true. A conceited person is trying to fill a void inside themselves with words or actions or attitudes that aren't true. So what does conceit then produce? Look at verse 26. Let us not become conceited. What flows out of someone who is conceited? Provoking one another, envying one another. These are the two general attitudes or actions that will be present in a conceited person. What does this mean, provoking and envying? Well, the word provoke literally means to call out or to challenge. Some of you have been provoked by health coaches or other kind of coaches like in sports, calling you out, challenging you for for growth in that sense. In this sense, the word goes beyond just the simple challenge. Paul is warning against a challenge done from a position of superiority. To provoke in this way is to give a condescending challenge, kind of a looking down your nose kind of challenge. Looking down your nose from a position of self-appointed false superiority, and from that position you provoke, you challenge. 
It's the spirit behind statements like this that maybe we won't utter verbally, but we might have echoing in the chambers of our heart. Why do I have to put up with these people? Why do I have to be around those kind of people? How stupid can they be? Why don't they get this? Why don't they see it? Why don't they understand? It, It says, I could do better. I would do better. Another way we can provoke is when we won't listen to others because we think we know better. An unteachable spirit might be an indication of being a provoker. Why do we do this? Why are we all tempted towards this, right? This is a universal temptation we all share. It's because there's an emptiness inside of us that drives this kind of sinful behavior. It's the emptiness of thinking we are better than we really are, wiser than we really are, and just keep filling in the blanks. Which, by the way, the cross of Christ removes all of those notions. The other term that Paul uses in verse 26, envy, you see it there, this is, might be easier for us to grasp. It's the opposite of provoke in the sense of where provoke is looking down from, from, from superiority. Envy is looking up in inferiority. Envy is when you look at what others have and what others enjoy and from this state of feeling inferior, from feeling empty because of what you lack, you despise and dislike. You say, they're so smart, they're so pretty, they're so successful, they're so good at this, they're so... And then you start to envy and resent, and this can easily descend into hatred. Then we say, I can't stand people like that. Look at how great and wonderful they are. There's something empty inside of us that drives this type of behavior. It's conceit. It's the emptiness of thinking we deserve more, we deserve better, we deserve what others have, what others have been given. What happens to our relationships when we live conceited, either provoking or envying? Superiority or inferiority driving this, this desire to fill this void within us no matter what. What happens, look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, that's a summary of what happens when we're conceited, provoking and envying. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The bite and devour of verse 15 is showcased in the works of the flesh, verses 19 through 21. What does it look like to bite and devour? Here's the works of the flesh. You can look at them. And then Paul summarizes it again and what this is in provoking and envying in verse 26. So what the Apostle Paul, what God is making abundantly clear here is if we bite and devour each other, we will ultimately destroy ourselves. This is serious. God has given this instruction to his church. Well, how does that happen? How do we destroy ourselves? Well, look at verse 13. It happens when we give opportunity for the flesh. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. There's this, this, this warning, this here's something, here's truth for you. You've been called to freedom, but now this counterweight of be careful because you can abuse this truth. And the result is we will bite, devour, and we will destroy ourselves. Watch out that you are not consumed. If we give opportunity for the flesh, if that goes on long enough, we will destroy ourselves. That's what God's word warns us about. What does it mean to give opportunity for the flesh? Well, look at the first part of verse 13. Paul is reminding his readers that they have been called to freedom. And here's one of the disadvantages of just kind of cannonballing into the middle of a letter of Paul. Is that he's been writing about this freedom in Christ, this freedom in Christ, this warning against a false gospel that tries to make you find standing before God, acceptance before God through your own works. And he's reminding them, you've been called to freedom. 
That freedom is being freed from the demands of the law as the means of attaining right standing before God. The freedom we've been called to is a freedom in Christ. It's the freedom of having the deep emptiness within us filled by the person and work of Jesus, not our works. The person and work of Jesus instead of our own efforts and achievement. There is no other freedom like it found in the world, friends. Where you fall short, Jesus didn't. Where you fail, Jesus never does. What you didn't do, Jesus did perfectly. That's the freedom that Paul has been presenting to his readers and saying, don't walk in anything other than this kind of freedom. This is the gospel. It's the central message of Christianity. It's true freedom. It being filled up in Christ by grace, not our works, through faith. Now, when we don't live in that freedom, when or if we give opportunity for the flesh, we're going to see all sorts of destructive behavior show up in us, which is what Paul describes in the works of the flesh. The flesh is going to work itself out in our lives in these various ways and things like that. It's not an exhaustive list. That's why Paul is warning about, in verse 15, biting and devouring and destroying one another. This is why Paul identifies and warns against the works of the flesh in verses 19 through 21. And in verse 20, notice how many sins of relationship Paul includes in these works of the flesh. If you look back at verse 20, you'll see it. Enmity and strife and jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. By the way, these are sins that only show up in the context of relationships. Right? I was trying to think of like, can you really do this to yourself in a mirror? Can you really be jealous of yourself? And I'm like, well, no, unless there's like split personality things going on there, right? You understand there has to be this relationship in order for these types of sins to ricochet back and forth and do their damage. Everything Paul is saying here means that if we see or hear a spirit or a tone or a disposition of strife or dissension or divisions within us as a church family, that should deeply concern us because that stuff will destroy us. That is giving opportunity for the flesh. This church family must not be a place where the works of the flesh are excused or accommodated in any of us. The works of the flesh will destroy us. Period. So I want to ask us all to examine our hearts before the Lord in the light of his word. And then confess and repent wherever we have given opportunity for the flesh And I'd like us to examine our hearts, especially over the past couple of months. I'm going to fulfill my responsibility as a pastor to push these truths into the nooks and crannies of our hearts by asking us a series of questions to help us with this self-examination. Have you had a spirit or actions of biting and devouring others? Have you lived in a conceited way, provoking, looking down, or envying, looking up? Have you been so determined you were or are right that you were willing to bite and devour others to prove that? Did you give opportunity to the flesh, verse 13, by refusing to truly hear one another or to listen to the biblical answers of your spiritual leaders, your pastors? If these works of the flesh are in our hearts at all, we must repent. Otherwise, verse 15, you can see it there. Watch out that we are not consumed by one another. Now, I want us to understand that these questions are not accusations. I don't know your heart, your inner motives, 
God does. As a pastor, all I can do is hold up the mirror of God's word and ask us all to look. And I'm trusting God's spirit to teach us and to let each of us see what we need to see in the mirror of God's word. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says this, The Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. I have confidence in God's spirit to do that. But here are some more questions to help us look into the mirror of God's word. Have you given strife and enmity, which again are works of the flesh, have you given them a place in your heart towards brothers and sisters in this church family, your elders or Christians in another church family? Or do you have a fleshly spirit of rivalry so that you could consider other Christians through a lens of us versus them? Or over the past two months, was your heart judgmental towards other Christians? Did you gossip about other Christians? Did you gossip about your spiritual leadership or hold them or other Christians in disdain? Disdain would be another expression of provoking. Flows from a conceited heart. If so, we must confess and repent. Otherwise, verse 15, do you see the warning there again? Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's press this a little further. Did you give way to the strident spirit of our modern age? And in that strident spirit, did you bring with you a spirit of dissension? Again, work of the flesh. So that you would walk away, even if temporarily, from those who you are in Christian covenant with. I want to clarify. I am not suggesting that if you were absent any time over the past two months, you were in sin. Nor am I suggesting that if you were absent when we had a candidate here to preach or had combined service, that you were in sin. Ultimately, only you and God know your motives and reasons for being absent. But I want us to evaluate your reasons. I want you to evaluate your reasons, whatever they are, all of us to evaluate our reasons as we make decisions moving forward in light of what we read aloud together last week from our membership covenant. These are the biblical truths, some of the biblical truths that we pledge to obey together. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love with humility and gentleness. As becomes the members of a Christian church, we will build one another up, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require, and forgive one another. Luke 17, Colossians 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Peter 1, Ephesians 4 are the texts that stand behind those statements. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. Colossians 4, Hebrews 10. So based on those commitments and the scriptures standing behind those commitments, it means we, we must not walk away from each other or avoid each other, especially in our times of trouble. Think about marriage vows. Right? The, the, the standard marriage vows in sickness and in health and poverty and in wealth. Okay, you've heard of those. Vows in marriage are not for the good times. I mean, really, when, I, when, I, when fiancés are standing there, the, 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 the bride and groom are standing there and making these vows to each other, it's, they're, they're often, it's, it's like, we don't need these. I mean, we're so in love, we can't believe this is so wonderful. We're getting married. You've been looking forward to this all these months, building up to it. Why are we making vows on our wedding day? Well, we're making vows because it's not for the easy times, the lovey-dovey times. Those vows exist primarily for the difficult times. 
Marriage vows are promises that you will be there for each other, even when or if you don't want to or don't feel like being there for each other in some future day. And you're making those vows now to each other. This is part of the glory of Christian marriage. It's one of the ways that our marriages then showcase the steadfast love of God for His church. And so now applying that now to our life together as a church family, if we start attending or not attending church based on our opinions of what we think should or shouldn't be happening in a church life matter, whether intended or not, the effect of that is sowing a spirit of discord and dissension, and ultimately it can be used by Satan to be divisive. And this goes both ways. If we withhold attendance in our church family because of discouragement from seeing areas of needed spiritual growth, how will we ever help each other 2 Peter 3.18, grow up in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Or Hebrews 10, stir up one another to love and good works. That passage is often thrown around, you know, to make sure that you're faithful in church. Of course, there's an application there, but really it's assuming that Christians are going to need to do what? Stir each other up. It assumes that there's going to be a need to restore and encourage and fan into flames again our affections for God and for one another because the world is trying to conform us into its mold all the time. And so I'll repeat, if you gave way to that strident spirit of our modern day and lived in the sinful spirit of dissension, even if it was not intended to be that way, starting to recognize how it's a default of our commitments to one another as people of God united together in this church family, then we must confess and repent because verse 15, there's the warning again, I'll let you see it. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. God warns us away from the works of the flesh with these strong terms. I mean, it's like these are, these are bridge-out kind of signs. Um, I, like you're driving into the mountains or down out of the mountains and there are these, these like runaway truck ramps. That would be terrifying, right, to end up in one of those. Can you imagine that? But there's these signs, runaway bridge ramp, and, and it's like this is, this is a, God is putting up these road signs as we're kind of barreling along the way. We can become blinded and sometimes we like pumping the brakes and the pumping the brakes as other Christians trying to help us slow down. God's putting these road signs up here to say, listen, if you, if you are headlong in this direction, the result is going to be devastation, destruction. Watch out that you do not consume each other. So then, what does God want for us? He's put up these road signs, but where is he sending us? What, are, what, are, what is the direction he wants us to go? If not these directions, which, by the way, is how relationships play out in the world all the time. How can things go right in our relationships? The answer to that question in its most simple form is verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, the verses like that just irritate you. It's like we've got these massive problems in our lives, in our spiritual, in our spiritual walk, and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And then it's like just this little simple statement. It's like Paul expects the sniper bullet just to kind of have its effect. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What is he saying here? What does this look like practically? Look at verse 13. We looked at this already, kind of we glanced at it, but now let's kind of unpack it a little bit more. He warns them, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Look at that verse again. I know we just read this, it sounds Bible-ish. We just kind of take it and kind of go on. But look at it again. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but, here's the counterweight, the contrast, through love serve one another. Does that seem odd 
to our modern day sensibilities that the word freedom and service are in the same verse? Our modern day society defines and thinks about freedom as an unfettered liberty to live as one wishes, a liberation from any restraint to live entirely as one pleases. That's the notion of freedom, quote-unquote, in our modern age. It defines freedom as doing whatever you want without restraint, so long as you don't harm someone else. Which, by the way, is why we have so many disastrous and absurd expressions of, quote-unquote, freedom. I'm free to do this. I'm free to identify that. I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. And we've got all sorts of just lunacy going on in the world around us. Right? Um, Is a fish free to live on land? What, if, what would you say to a fish? I know we're having a conversation with a fish now. But what would you say to a fish that says, I identify as a, I want to be a land animal. I am a land animal. I am free to live on land. Well, you'd say, well, silly, you're going to die. You haven't been made for that. Freedom for you is to be in water. Right? Well, what is the freedom? What is true freedom for us? According to the Bible in Galatians 5.13, Christian freedom is something entirely different from the world's definition of freedom. Christian freedom is actually being free to serve. Now, does that sound contradictory? Like, isn't freedom like not having to serve? Like, isn't vacation like getting away from relationships and getting away from dishes and getting away from laundry and getting away from the routines? Now remember, we've already seen how the flesh consumes. The flesh wants to fill this inner emptiness with, through your own efforts no matter what. Religious people, by the way, try to fill that void through religious actions. Right? Keeping the law. Galatians, the context would be circumcision, which is a fulfillment of all the, of the, of the Mosaic law. Irreligious people try to fill that void within themselves, that emptiness, through sinful, excessive indulgences, fruit of the uh, works of the flesh. Either way, they're expressions of works, of self-salvation, depending on self-effort. Jesus rescues us from that. That's the freedom we have. And so when a person embraces Jesus, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, the Spirit of God gives you freedom from that old fleshly way of life. You're no longer trying to fill that empty void because Jesus has done that. That's what it means to be a Christian. This kind of freedom is only found in Jesus, not our efforts. And when you've been set free like this, friends, it enables you to love. It enables you to love. Notice in verse 13, Paul says, through love serve one another. Not through duty. Now there are times where we do what we must when we don't want to. But it says, ordinarily, what should be driving it is love. Now, the modern-day definition of love is essentially consume, eat, take. Our modern, our modern notion of love is, is really self-centered. And, it's, and, and these, by the way, these, um, these echoes of our modern-day definitions of love are, are within our own hearts, too. And God's Word is constantly trying to filter out, the, filter out that, that contamination. But our modern day might say, oh, I love her, I love him. But really, it's I love the way they make me feel. I love what they do for me. I love how they, how they, and it's usually consume, consume, take, and eat. The Christian definition of love is serve, give. So now do you see the contrast? The works of the flesh, verses 19 and 21, you can glance at them again. They are all essentially take, consume, indulge. It's all motivated by a desire to fill our emptiness through our own efforts. 
That's why when we give way, if, any, if we ever give way to this, right? Um, for instance, there's no modern-day society that says, let's build society on the works of the flesh. Let's find ways to enhance enmity and strife. Let's find ways to enhance and promote division and dissensions. Let's build a society on that. Because we know that's going to destroy. That's everyone kind of survival of the fittest, consuming, filling the emptiness in ourselves. But the fruit of the Spirit is, see verse 22 of chapter 5? The fruit of the Spirit is, do you see it? What is it? It is love. And of course there's more, but it starts with the fruit of the Spirit is love. The flesh is driven by emptiness. Christian love flows out of fullness. That is why Christian love is a call to serve. And by the way, the fullness that Christian love flows out of is the fullness of being set free in Jesus. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about love. 1 Corinthians 13, right? Some of you might have this memorized. This is one of those passages that's often recited at weddings. Right? I mean, go ahead and turn there. Do you mind? Go ahead and find, find your way there. 1 Corinthians 13. And it's fine to use 1 Corinthians 13 in those settings, okay? But in the context, if we understand what Paul's been writing to the church in Corinth, which, by the way, was a church with massive problems. Massive problems. It was, in many ways, a dysfunctional church. In the middle of this, He's writing, he's correcting their wrongs, he's, he's rebuking their sin, he's calling them out on their false sense of spirituality. In the middle of all this, they've been fighting about, um, well, we'll get there in a second. In the middle of all this, Paul delivers chapter 13, which is not kind of, let's just all light candles, hold hands, and kind of sing kumbaya, and our problems are gone. 1 Corinthians 13 was a knockout punch from the pen of Paul by the Spirit of God to the factious spirit. God is just delivering a knockout punch to this factious spirit of division and dissension that was present in the church in Corinth. That's the effect of 1 Corinthians 13. If you were to sit down and read the letter from start and, and get all the way through this, and now you come up to chapter 13, it is not just this warm, squishy sentimentalism. It is bold truth to correct a factious, divisive spirit going on in the church. The church in Corinth was divided over personalities. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, that's 1 Corinthians 1. They were divided over Christian liberties in cultural engagement, like meat offered to idols, chapters 8 through 10. They were fighting over spiritual gifts, like tongues and prophecy, chapter 12. And this, by the way, ties into our text in Galatians 5, in that Paul said he had to talk to the Corinthian church as, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, as people of flesh instead of as spiritual people. They were giving opportunity for the flesh. There was this emptiness within them. And they were trying to fill it, and the works of the flesh were being manifested, and it was tearing the church apart from the inside out. So he writes 1 Corinthians 13, under inspiration by the Spirit, as a knockout punch to that. And Paul says this. Look at the end of chapter 12. He says this. I will show you a still more excellent way. Friends, that's what God has for us, a more excellent way. What is that way? The way is love. Look at verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
Christian love flows out of fullness. Does this describe you, your actions, your attitudes, as you examine your participation in this church family? How important is love? It's non-negotiable. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, back verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, and look at just verse 2. He says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains... By the way, remember Jesus says that? If you have faith, you can take this mountain and say, Move and it'll move. He says, But if I have not love, I am... What does it say there? I am what? See it? Let's hear it. I am nothing. Verse 3, if I give away all I have. Well, that sounds very liberal, doesn't it? If I deliver up my body to be burned, that sounds very kind of militant, right? Like martyr. But have not love, I what? I gain nothing. Do we really believe this? Do we really believe that we could give ourselves in in martyrdom we could give our bodies to be burned for a cause but not love love and what we have gained nothing which we don't have time to do connect all this but this is why well, this is why Paul in Philippians was talking about how he would give up everything count everything as rubbish to what gain Christ Back in Galatians, you can find your way back there. Back in Galatians, Paul goes on in verse 14. And he helps us understand the connection now between love and serving. In verse 14, he says this. Here's the reason. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh man, like this is, this is like like elementary kind of Christian stuff here. Love your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule. This verse and others like it are sometimes used as a sort of Christian self-esteem boost. Right? That is not what God is saying here. Love your neighbor as yourself, so in order to love others, you need to learn how to love yourself. That is not what the Bible teaches here. The scriptures, all the way back from the Old Testament, all the way on through, Assume that each person has an innate self-interest. In other words, everyone loves themselves. You love yourself. I love myself. That is my, that is my condition. That is, an op, that is a principle that is constantly at work within me, within you, within all of us. We deeply, you deeply, intensely want to be happy, and that is true even if you don't know what's going to bring you happiness. Which, by the way, if you take that, works of the flesh, filling that emptiness, that's what you see. But if you take that desire to be happy and find yourself filled in Christ, now you are full and you can love and serve. Now, as I was studying this out, this, the whole law is fulfilled in this, in this one statement, love your neighbor as yourself, I came across uh, some phrases that were just so helpful to, to kind of give shape to what this command might look like with, within us, okay, for us practically. Which, by the way, this, there is no harder command in the Bible than this, love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean? Um, borrowing this as I came across in my study, think of it this way. It means that you will want to feed you would want to feed the hungry as much as you want to feed yourself when you get hungry. It means you want to find your neighbor a job as much as you are glad that you have a job. It means you want to help your fellow student get A's as much as you want to get A's. 
means you want to help the person stalled on the freeway as much as you are glad you are not stalled on the freeway. It means you're going to want to help the person at work be successful as much as you are glad that you are successful. You want to share Christ with your neighbors as much as you are glad that you know Christ yourself. It means that we'll want to care about what happens to others as much as you care about what happens to yourself. And on and on we could go stitching together phrases like that. Can you imagine what the church would be like if we were all like that? Like constantly trying to outdo each other in serving? If we were to look at the person to the right or the left of us, in front of us or behind us, with the same longing for their happiness that we feel for our own. And can you imagine walking into a place like that? I, I know that, that, that coming to church for some has been a real drag in different moments over the last couple of months, even presently, even maybe today. But can you imagine walking into a church that was like this, where we are all like, man, I get to love you as much as I love myself. Woo, here we go. I mean, this place would be filled and overflowing with this indescribable joy. I mean, there would just kind of be this hilarious, almost this guineas, I'm imagining, right? The glory of God would be unmistakably seen in us. I mean, Jesus always talks so much. It's recorded like in John where he talks about the glory and the joy that Jesus has with the Father and how he wants us to share in that joy of being one with him and with each other in the Father. We would be fulfilling our mission of displaying God's glory. I mean, people would walk in these doors and walk out and go, I don't get it. They've got all sorts of reasons to fight, but they don't. Something powerful is at work, drawing them together, holding them together, uniting them in joy together. Tell me more about Jesus. I wonder if by God's grace people would likely be converted when they heard our gospel proclamation of Jesus, either privately or publicly, like this in a gathered church, and they saw that kind of radical, transforming love at work within us so that we are serving out of fullness, not the works of the flesh out of emptiness, but serving out of fullness because of the fullness we have received in Christ. By the way, this is what we want to be as a church. That's where we're headed. Now, there's all sorts of roadblocks We have the sin, we have the flesh, we have the world, we have the devil. But that's where we're headed, church family. This is what we want to be. This is why Jesus was able to, this is why he said in John 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciple. We know this, but he did not say, even though he said, be holy as I'm holy, even though there's all these other commands, what did Jesus put in this statement? By this, this distinguishing mark is what's going to set you apart as the people of God. It is this. If You have love for one another. You see, we can all pursue different accomplishments of spiritual exercise and religious exercise and activity. We could could give everything we have away, even. But if we have not love, we have gained what? Nothing. If we don't have love, we are nothing. That's what God says. And we cannot be satisfied with anything less. So we want to be a church family that does not use our freedom as, verse 13, an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, we want to, through love, serve one another. Will you pray and commit and serve toward this wonderful aim? If we won't, remember the warning in verse 15. But if you bite and devour... One another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Sometimes I wonder if the spirit of our age is in us more than we care to admit. 
We might say we love, quote-unquote, others, but too often, does that mean that we like what we get from others? We like how others make us feel? That truth is hard to to find out sometimes, but it, it can be revealed once sacrifice, true sacrifice, is required. As soon as God requires us to suffer long with each other, maybe then we realize, oh, I don't love them after all. They're not giving me what I want. They're not affirming me the way I'd like. They're not, and now I have to suffer long. I have to sacrifice. I have to be patient. I have to bear all things. I have to believe all things. I have to not insist on my, what? Forget it. There's other people that will give me what I want. Empty, empty, not full serving love. Maybe we say we love, but maybe when controversy and disagreements appear, the reality is we've been inwardly biting and devouring in our hearts all along. Maybe it's just kind of been, been secretly down there within us. I could do better than her. I could do better than him. I could do better than that. I would say it better than him. Which, by the way, I'm going to throw pastors under the bus right now. I, I've had to repent even in my own heart of that inclination. It is very difficult, little, little candor here, right? It is difficult for pastors. And, and I... When I was studying this this week, and I came across this example from another pastor, and I was like, he's right. All right, so here's what I'm saying. It is difficult for pastors to go to other churches and listen to others preach. Why? Because we're so full of ourselves. We think, well, I would have done it this way. I wouldn't have said that. I would have known. Over here, I wouldn't have known. Or I could have, or I wouldn't have. Or, man, they're so great. I'm a horrible. I'm never preaching again in my life. (laughs) These people are awesome, man. I mean, what is that? That's provoking and that's envying. That's, that's, that's empty. That's trying to fill. That is not looking at Christ and all he's given us and say, God, even on my best day, I'm calling outside the lines. It's your grace that is pleased to use anything that I would ever do at any time. Maybe we are more fleshly than we care to admit. Maybe it's been dormant in us because it hasn't been tested in the heat of controversy or disagreements. Maybe we aren't really too different from the church in Corinth. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people. That's brothers and sisters. Brother, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. What if one of your pastors said that from a sermon? What if the pastor just got up and said, Church, I want to talk to you as spiritual people, but I can't. You're infants in Christ. You're fleshly. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it. (laughs) Do you hear Paul's tone to the Corinthian church? For you are still of the flesh, he says. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Do we need to repent? Do you need to repent of harboring a spirit of jealousy or strife that maybe lies dormant until controversy or disagreement comes up? Do you need to repent of behaving only in a human way? I believe God has given Highlands Baptist Church many blessings of the acts of service born out of love within this membership. I believe that's happening today. I believe you being here today is a demonstration. can be a demonstration of a heart that wants to serve out of love. I praise God for that. Every time that happens, friends, we we should not take that for granted. It's a miracle of grace that there are people that are making coffee and are opening doors and are getting chairs straightened and doing things behind the scenes that nobody knows. Born out of love, God willing. But yet I believe God wants us to grow in this. And I would say this, the past two months have shown us we must grow in this. Over the next few weeks, 
Her sermons are going to explore more of God's word, God's plan, God's heart for us, God's glorious vision for his church to enjoy. We're going to look at passages like Galatians 2 and Ephesians 4. Will you pray with me and your elders about this, that God's word would take root in our hearts and produce fruit of righteousness to your scriptural words. Now, does God's expectations for us through love to serve one another seem impossible? Now, there's times where it feels impossible, right? We've all been there in different places in our relationships with one another, in our, even in our own families, husbands and wives, parents. Have you ever felt like, like with your kids, like, really? I have, to, I have to serve them more? Do the controversies and disagreements that inevitably are going to come up in the synchronous world seem too powerful, too strong for us to realistically overcome? Take heart. We have Jesus. We have Christ. Paul said in chapter 5, Galatians 5.25, you can see it there again. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I'll, I'll wrap up here. I know I've, I've gone long. Thank you for your patience. We'll wrap up here. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Well, what kind of steps does the Spirit take? You were, like, on a snowy day when you were a kid, and your dad, I remember being in Wisconsin, and we had winters in Wisconsin, and there'd be, you know, he would go out from our back door out to the garage. He did not have an attached garage. Why they make houses like that in Wisconsin, I don't know. And as a kid, I remember he would make steps, and I would try to find the next, I would just go from one indentation to the next of his steps. So what kind of steps is the Spirit leaving in the snow for us? Philippians chapter 2. Here is the Christ-mindedness, right? That, instead of fleshly-minded, these are the steps that we, that we should walk in. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the only place you're going to find this kind of mindedness in Christ, in Jesus. Not on, not on your sports, not on your news, news channel, not on your, 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 your news aggregate feed of your, 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 your latest blog feed of what's going on in the world. You're going to find it in Jesus. Here's the steps that he's made. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There's so much in there. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant I mean, you consider, last night I saw it, Shannon and I saw it, a shooting star, the brightest blazing shooting star I've ever seen in my life. I saw a news article about the Voyager spacecraft. I'm, I love space. I'm not going to geek out too long. But the Voyager spacecraft is like 16 billion miles away from us right now, still going on with the golden record with Chuck Berry songs on it, right? And... It's going to go for another 40,000 years before it gets 1.6 light years away from the next star. Okay, while all your minds reboot, (laughs) Jesus made that. And he gave it up and came as a baby, as as a person, as a servant. And by the way, he did not come in a rock star, you know, chiseled physique, with, with, with features that were like, man, I want to follow this guy. I mean, the scriptures describe him as somebody who was homely, kind of like, whoa. Like there was nothing about him to be desired, the scriptures describe Jesus as. 
He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He just keeps going lower and lower and lower. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What we see in Philippians 2 is this beautiful portrait of Jesus, but it's an odd beauty. It's, it's, a, it's a not a People magazine beauty. It's not Vogue magazine beauty. It's, it's unusual. It's an out-of-this-world kind of beauty because Jesus moves towards the things that we run away from. On our own, we're empty. And so we run toward the powerful. We run toward the popular. We run toward the impressive, the polished, trying to fill our inner emptiness. But we've been freed from that, friends. We run towards those who are going to affirm our preferences, our policies, our positions. Hey, we got so much. Man, I like being with them. We've got so much in common. This is, this is great. It feels good and it temporarily fills our inner sense of emptiness. But sadly, whatever drips of fulfillment we might find in those efforts, in those fleshly efforts, it'll never fill the dry ocean bed of our souls. Only Jesus can. So what's our hope? Jesus. It's embracing the fullness of life that, we have, that we've been given in Jesus. Jesus moves towards those we run away from. That means Jesus runs toward us even when we are at our worst. And he says to every sinner, come. Isaiah 6 says Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted, to bring good news to the poor, to set captives free, to liberate the oppressed. Those are all the kinds of sectors and spheres of people that we avoid. We're awkward. We don't know how to be around them. It's just we run from the leper. Jesus touches the leper. We tell people to go home, find their own food because we're tired and overwhelmed and Jesus feeds them. We try to fill ourselves. Jesus emptied himself. We bite and devour each other. Jesus gives his life freely. So do you see how the more that we think about and meditate on and then live in the reality of how Jesus alone truly can fill us? Only then will we keep in step with the Spirit and not give opportunity for the flesh. This is the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that tells us about Jesus. It's, it's like Jesus' hand, our hand is on that sword and Jesus' hand is on our hand too. And we go into battle and we walk out of that cave and the flesh is like laying with a mortal wound. It's in the, on the ground. This dragon of the flesh is on the ground, mortally wounded. Now, that dragon isn't ultimately dead yet. It's bleeding out. And it's still going to convulse. and still gonna, We're still going to have to keep heaping stones on its grave. But we're looking forward to the day when, we will be, when it will be fully bled out and gone. You see how the extent that you are filled up by embracing and celebrating and remembering Jesus, then you'll be enabled through love to serve one another. The controversies and disagreements that will inevitably, be, inevitably rise up in our sin-cursed world won't be able to, to touch us in the sense of biting, devouring, destroying. Because when we are filled with Jesus, we can serve. Christian love flows out of fullness. Where do we find the fullness? Christ. Christ. This is who we are in Jesus. This is what we've been given in Jesus. He's not just this distant superhero that's done something 2,000 years ago for us. 
It is relevant for today. It will radically transform your marriage, your parenting, your relationships with your neighbors that have the yippy dog that won't shut up. It'll help you with your relationships with people in here that won't shut up. When we are so full with Christ, none of us are going to outgive Jesus. It's impossible. None of us can be exasperate Jesus more than we do. I mean, he made the world and we're, and we're just like these little, little creatures kind of going on our own way, it's calling it wisdom. Little amoeba conferences, right? Thinking they're so wise. Friends, he loves us. He gave himself for us. He's, he's the trendsetter, the trailblazer. And so this is who we are in Christ. This is the freedom that is ours in Christ which means we have such a spectacular opportunity as we gather together on Sundays, as we scatter through the week, through the week, as we consider our relationships with one another, not just here on a Sunday, but on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday and the other days of the week, we get to serve each other through the fullness of Christian love. This is where we are headed. And I want for you to hear a call, come this way. Let's walk in these steps in the snow of Christ on this path of fullness of serving each other in love. Let's put to death in us the deeds of the flesh to borrow Puritan language, old Puritan language. So will you pray and repent and believe and obey Jesus day after day after day as we walk that way? I'll ask the music team to come up. As they come up, here's just a couple of final verses for our contemplation a call to action for our, for our response. Are we all willing to move forward in faith-filled obedience to scriptures like this? Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Or 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Since love covers a multitude of sins. And finally, will you faithfully and regularly pray? We've seen how important love is serving out of fullness, would you pray for your church family, for your family, for your heart, the way that Paul did for the Thessalonian Christians when it says it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Let's pray.